You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's good to be back here with you this morning. Um, just as we uh, jump back into Mark together, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for this morning, um, and we thank you uh, for the gospel of Mark. Uh, we thank you for this book that we have been studying together for some time, and as we uh, re-enter into the story this morning, uh, I just pray that you would be with us and that you would soften our hearts, um, and that you would allow us to see your glory and your goodness and your character uh, in the life uh, of Jesus. Um, we thank you uh, that you prompted uh, your apostles um, and their students to write these stories down, um, to make a point of documenting uh, the life of Jesus on earth. We thank you um, for the many reasons that we can trust this word and we can trust their account of your life. And uh, we just pray that we would um, listen and take heed and uh, that we would, yeah, that we would see you in this and that we would understand what it means for us and what it means for the world. Um, so as we just look at a small passage this morning, we pray uh, for soft hearts and listening ears. Uh, we pray all these things in the precious, perfect, and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are jumping back into the Gospel of Mark together uh, this morning. Uh, it was about a year ago uh, that we started uh, this book, and we kept going right up until Christmas. We took a little break for Advent, and then we kept going until Easter, and then we took a little bit more of an extended break. Um, some of you have, are, are jumping in in the middle of this. You weren't around uh, when we did the earlier part. Um, some of you will remember uh, the many, many weeks that we've gone through this book, and there are many, many more to come. We're only about two-thirds of the way through. So buckle up. Here we go. Um, since it's been a little while since we spent time uh, in the book, I figured it would be good to just kind of reintroduce the Gospel of Mark a little bit, get us on the same page, and then maybe spend some time um, just briefly going over kind of the broader narrative of the Gospel before we jump into the passage uh, in particular that we're looking at um, this morning. So like I said, it was about a year ago that we started this book together, and Sam Meyer was the first to give a message in this series, um, and he gave this really great introduction. So if you haven't heard that message, or if you forget anything about it, I would encourage you to go on Spotify, scroll way down, and find that message and re-listen to it. It was from September last year. Um, he gives kind of a great introduction to the book. The other resource that I would recommend um, is something called The Bible Project. Some of you might be familiar with this website. Um, but among other videos, uh, they've got a series of videos there that give short, you know, eight or ten minute introductions to every book of the Bible, including the Gospel of Mark. And the video on the Gospel of Mark is super helpful for kind of understanding the broad picture of what Mark is trying to accomplish. So if you just Google the Bible Project Mark, you'll find that either on YouTube or on their website, and I would recommend that you take some time uh, to watch that too. Actually, I would recommend anytime we go through a new book, Usually it's a good place to start to go to that website to get kind of a broad, a broad picture. So both, um, both the Bible Project in their video and Sam in his message um, highlighted uh, that based on the best information that we have, um, the Gospel of Mark was obviously written by a guy named Mark, um, but there's a bunch of Marks in the first century, so we have to figure out which one. Well, based on the best information that we have, this was actually uh, the Mark that is mentioned in Scripture in a few places. In particular, he's called John Mark. 
Um, and he was a close associate of um, at least some of the apostles, um, namely Paul and Peter. So both of them reference him in their epistles that they write. So in Colossians and in 1 Peter, there's kind of a greeting um, to, the, to the people they're writing to, says something along the lines of, you know, greet Mark, my brother, or something like this. This is the Mark that wrote um, the Gospel of Mark. From sources outside of the Bible, we know that uh, this John Mark was particularly a student of Peter. Um, he was Peter's student and Peter's writer, actually. Um, there's, an, there's an ancient church historian that um, talks about John Mark um, taking time to write down the things that Peter told him. And he placed a high value on accuracy and completeness when it came to Peter's testimony about Jesus. So this is why, in some cases, we actually hear the Gospel of Mark referred to as Peter's Gospel. Because really what we're reading is most likely um, Peter's account of the life of Jesus written down by Mark. Mark wasn't himself an apostle, wasn't necessarily himself an eyewitness of the things uh, during Jesus' life, but he's getting his information directly from the source, directly from one of Jesus' inner circle of apostles, someone who was there for it all, someone who saw it with his own eyes and walked side by side with Jesus and was a part of that inner circle of life and ministry. So we know who wrote the book, and we know that his information is trustworthy. But I think the other key background detail to remind ourselves of is when Mark wrote down this account. So the book was written sometime between the years 55 and 70 AD. Now, for most of us, those are just numbers, right? We don't immediately know the implications of, of those dates, right? Even if we know roughly when Jesus' life and ministry was somewhere around 30 AD, we can do the math, say that's about 25 to 40 years later, but it still might feel a little bit abstract. Um, if you remember Sam's message a year ago, you will remember a, a brilliant little illustration he had to kind of put this in context, and I think it's worth repeating this morning. So we have this window of 55 to 70 AD, 25 to 40 years after the life of Jesus. Well, what does that look like? Well, for us today, if Mark was writing towards the end of that window, closer to 70 AD or 40 years later, that would be something like, Sam told us, something like someone today writing about Terry Fox. Terry Fox died in 1981, a little bit over 40 years ago, right? So if Mark is writing at the end of that window, it's like someone writing about Terry Fox. If Mark was writing a little bit earlier than that, it would be the equivalent of someone writing about Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. Freddie Mercury died in 10 years after Terry Fox in 91, but his bandmates are actually still touring today, believe it or not. They had tour dates in 2022. So if you want to parallel, right, Freddie dies in 91, his bandmates are still touring. Jesus dies in 30 AD, somewhere in the 60s AD, the apostles are still doing life and ministry. They're still writing epistles, right? Some of the things that we have in, in uh, the New Testament, right? So pretty closely connected. If Mark happens to be writing in the earliest part of that window, in 55 AD, Sam pointed out that the distance would be about the same as someone writing about Princess Diana. If Mark was writing at that point, he would have been writing at the same time as a bunch of the stories that we read in Acts were actually occurring, right? Paul's missionary journeys, the later ones, and then his journey to Rome, his subsequent house arrest, 
It's in that category. So regardless of which one of these it is, early, middle, late, in this 15-year spread, I hope that you can see the point is that Mark wasn't writing about some distant historical figure. He was writing about someone who a large portion of the population would remember actually being alive. Many of his readers might have actually been witnesses themselves to the things that Mark was writing about, or they knew somebody who was. So that would really increase the difficulty for Mark to write anything false, because people were alive that had witnessed these things. So the time of Mark's writing and the source of his information, these are two details that should increase our confidence in his account about the life and the work of Jesus. And these two details, you know, like who wrote it and, and when it was written, they're often things that we talk about when we open up a new book in Scripture, right? When somebody gets up there to, to preach the, the first sermon in the series, usually they're talking about these details, right? And maybe for some of you, these things can feel just like interesting historical facts that are really just, you know, to fill up an introduction um, or they're just for the nerds in the room, you know? Um, but when it comes down to it, maybe you feel like they don't really have any practical significance. But I know in my own journey of faith, understanding details like this, especially when it comes to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have become really, really important. And I think that they deserve repeating. Because it's critical that we can trust what Mark is writing about Jesus. We need to be sure that we can take seriously his account. Because if these things are in fact true, they have really big implications for us. And Mark knows that. Right? In, in terms of style and genre, Mark is basically writing a, what we might call a Greco-Roman biography. Right? It's a story about the life of a person. But it's not a story about just any person. Right? It's, it's summertime. I'm, I'm sure that many of you on your vacations this summer um, enjoy have enjoyed reading books, right? Maybe you have a, a stack of books you want to get through this summer, and you might enjoy a particular genre. I'm sure that some of us in the room enjoy reading biographies, right? We enjoy reading about the life of a historical figure, whoever that might be, whether it's, you know, someone that lived a long time ago or someone that lived in more recent times. We like to just read about other people's lives. But we read these books purely for interest's sake, right? We get through them, we put it down, we say, huh, that's interesting. I know a little bit more about Winston Churchill or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's fascinating. And that's really all the books often are meant to be, is entertaining, engaging, interesting. But it's not quite the same with this biography about Jesus. Mark is not simply telling us stories for the sake of telling us stories. He starts his gospel by making it plain that this person that he's writing about, it's not just another Jewish teacher or uh, a first century prophet. This person that he's writing about, he claims, is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the world. He's presenting Jesus not only as God's messenger, but as God himself, a king that has immense power and is deserving of praise, and yet a king who isn't exactly what the world was expecting, isn't exactly what the Jews were hoping for. He's a much different kind of king, a much better one. And as we went through the first two-thirds of this book, we saw over and over again that Mark accomplishes his goal not with providing much commentary, right? He doesn't often share his opinion about what's going on. He doesn't share 
what he thinks very often. And yet his stories all clearly have a point. The question that Mark seems to be building towards as we read about Jesus and all that he said and did, and then how people responded to him, right? They are sometimes accepting him completely. They maybe greet him with a little bit of skepticism, or they just outright reject him. The thing that he kind of seems to be building towards, the question that he's asking is, what about you? How are you going to respond? Are you going to follow this king? Are you going to join in the work of advancing his kingdom and expanding his reign? Mark's gospel um, is the shortest of the four gospels. It's often described as sort of an action-packed narrative because, again, Mark doesn't provide much commentary. He simply tells story after story, back-to-back, jumping from one to the next. And all the while, he's kind of asking us to put ourselves into the story. As we see other people react, we ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to Jesus? Now, the gospel can kind of roughly be be broken down into three separate parts. The first eight chapters are set in Galilee, and they kind of center around Jesus uh, and his initial ministry and his progressive revelation to to people who exactly he is. The core message that he's preaching is the kingdom of God has come near. God is still at work in the world, and he wants to, through Jesus, confront evil and rescue people from its grip. He's inviting people to once again follow God, to live under his reign, but to do so by following Jesus' example. And all of that comes through a series of startling acts by Jesus where he shows his power by healing people and forgiving their sins. And all that's met, again, with mixed reactions. People are not sure what to make of him because he's not exactly what they were expecting. This is not what the Jews thought God's kingdom would look like. So that's the first part, ministry in Galilee. The third part focuses on the culminating work of Jesus in Jerusalem. He kind of has this royal entry into Jerusalem that we heard about earlier, and then he he does this right under the Romans' nose. He confronts the religious establishment, and then he frees his people, not from political oppression by a military victory, but from the grip of sin and death through his death and subsequent resurrection. So the first part is in Galilee, kind of revealing who he is. The third part is sort of the climax of his victory over sin and death. The middle part of Mark is kind of in between these two sections, and it serves sort of as a pivot point between them. It goes from Jesus' broader ministry to his particular work in Jerusalem. And the middle section focuses in on the confusion among Jesus' own disciples, In chapters 8 to 10, his disciples are basically grappling with, like, what does this practically mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Because they were expecting this physical liberation and an earthly kingdom. But Jesus is trying to tell them, no, I'm actually going to become king through suffering and death. Following me is not about fame. It's not about a reign. It's not about status. It's about giving up your life rejecting pride, and serving others. And he tries to communicate to them, this to them a bunch of different times, but they're simply not getting it. And it all culminates with a story in chapter 10 where James and John are asking Jesus to give, give them status and glory when he is crowned king. But Jesus responds with these poignant words in verses 43 
to 45. This is in Mark chapter 10. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's where we left off in April. All right, we got up to speed. There it is. We've built towards this moment where this is, this is almost the thesis statement of the entire gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is the kingdom ethic. It's an inside-out, upside-down sort of kingdom. The first will be last, and the last will be first. And as is typical of Mark and the style that he's writing in, there isn't much of an explanation of Jesus' words, only illustration. The passage that we had read earlier this morning, the end of chapter 10 and then into the beginning of chapter 11, this passage contains two familiar stories that we're going to look at this morning that fit right in with this, this theme. God's kingdom is not exactly what the world expects. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So first we have the story of blind Bartimaeus, followed by the story of Christ's triumphal entry. So let's step through the passage, and we'll make a few observations as we go. So if you've got your Bibles, flip with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 46 with the story of blind Bartimaeus. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So at this point in the story where we pick it up, um, Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem, probably following an old ancient pilgrimage path towards the city. Um, they're perhaps on their way up for a particular feast, um, potentially Passover itself. And they pass through Jericho because that's where the road goes through. And, as, uh, and then it says, as they were leaving Jericho, um, Jesus was with his disciples and a great crowd. So they're kind of with a whole bunch of people. It's not just Jesus and his disciples. There's a big crowd around them, right? Again, probably pilgrims all headed up to the city for a feast, one of the, one of the Jewish feasts. And as they pass through Jericho, there's Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, sitting by the roadside. Now, that would have been pretty common. I mean, Jericho, again, it's on the main road. It's a main thoroughfare, and that would have been a good spot for a beggar to sit. So that's where we find this guy, Bartimaeus. He's sitting by the roadside. And then he hears, probably from someone in the crowd, the watchers, you know, he hears that amongst this crowd is Jesus of Nazareth. And he, he probably has heard about Jesus, of, Jesus before because as soon as he finds that it's Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to cry out and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus makes this sort of general plea for help. He refers to Jesus as the son of David. Now, at a minimum, this is just a general respectful title, but it's possible that Bartimaeus actually knew who Jesus was. He knew about Jesus' messianic identity because we know that the Messiah was meant to be a descendant of King David, right? So perhaps he's calling out saying like, Jesus, Messiah, help me. 
but maybe it's just a general respectful title. It's sort of ambiguous. Regardless, though, we know that Bartimaeus knows his need and knows Jesus can help. And then in verse 48, we see the people around him, and they're rebuking him, telling him to be silent. You know, beggar, be quiet, be quiet. Like, stay over there, stay out of the way. Right? But he cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in verse 49, we read, Jesus stopped. He stopped in his tracks, and he turned and he said, call him. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. I find this kind of ironic, like what a quick switch, right? Like, beggar, be quiet, get out of the way. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, oh, actually, I want to talk to him. Oh, man, take heart, come on, Jesus wants to talk to you, right? Like just an about face, right? But anyways, they call him, get up, take heart, Jesus wants to talk to you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that question sound familiar at all? It maybe doesn't because the last sermon was in April. <laughs> but if it was last week, you might remember it. Flip back to, verses, uh, to verse 36 of chapter 10. This is the story of James and John where they've asked him, uh, well, they've said, Teacher, what do, what, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then Jesus asks them the same question that he's just asked Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Okay, interesting. We've got James and John and Bartimaeus being asked the same question. Hold that thought for a minute. Let's go back to verse uh, 51, and we'll see what is Bartimaeus' response. So Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, the word for rabbi there is actually the word um, rabboni, which is the same word. It only occurs one other time in the New Testament. It's the same word that Mary uses to refer to Jesus when she finds him in the garden after he is raised from the dead. And it's a little bit stronger. I mean, we kind of know what the word rabbi means, right? Teacher. Rabboni is a little bit stronger than that. It means my Lord and my master. So we can kind of see the picture here. Jesus is looking at this blind beggar who's been hushed by the crowd, but he calls him out, and he asks this guy, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And he says, my Lord and my master, I just want to see. Compare that to verses 35 to 37 that we went through before. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Teacher, we want a throne. We want a throne beside yours. And then Jesus says, you guys, you guys don't have a clue what you're asking for. Compare that response to what he says to Bartimaeus in verse 52. He says, and Jesus, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Does anybody else in the room change their response to somebody depending on if the question sounds a little bit more like a demand than a request? Like when I was a teenager, I feel like I learned pretty quickly that it should be, hey, mom and dad, would it be okay if I borrowed the van to go to youth tonight? Rather than, hey, Daryl, I'm taking the wheels tonight, and okay? Kate, Right? Those, those two things are very different. And if you know Daryl, you know that it wouldn't go over well. 
And all the parents are thinking, like, amen, right? It seems like Jesus is doing the same thing here. When he's confronted with this prideful demand of James and John, his response is like, you guys have no idea. And he gives them this rebuke throughout the rest of the passage. And it's not necessarily particularly harsh, but it is a clear explanation that James and John, you are asking the wrong question and you're asking from the wrong heart. But then there's this response to Bartimaeus. It's much different. He readily gives him what he's asking for. I don't think it's an accident that Mark has put these two stories side by side, with Jesus asking the same questions of the same question of James and John that he does to Bartimaeus. Because it serves to provide this stark contrast between the posture of those two disciples and the posture of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was not asking for status or glory. He was all too aware of his need for something far more basic. The irony is that although Bartimaeus was physically blind, Mark is almost portraying him as seeing things far more clearly than the others do. He was desperate. He knew his need. He knew that Jesus held the power to help him. And what I love about this story is that he was not too proud to ask for that help. He knew what Jesus could do, and he went for it. And Jesus, seeing Bartimaeus' understanding of his own need, seeing the faith that he had, was willing to stop and help. All that Bartimaeus had to do was articulate that need. I don't think that this contrast needs a whole lot more explanation. I think the idea is pretty clear. There's a posture and a heart that the Lord is looking for, and there's a posture and a heart that he's not looking for. And as much as this story serves to expose potentially that heart in, in me, in us, it exposes that less than lovely heart that, that James and John had in the previous story, the story also puts on display the heart of God towards us, especially to those who are humble enough to recognize their need of him. Remember, like Jesus at this point is on his way to Jerusalem. He's ready to engage in a significant battle, not just with the human leaders of the Jewish religion, but with the cosmic forces of sin, evil, and death. He's got a lot on his mind. And the disciples probably know that something significant is going to happen. They don't know exactly what yet, but they know that they are going towards Jerusalem with a purpose. And yet their leader, when they're on the road, they're amidst a great crowd, they hear this cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. In the midst of that mission, their leader stops. And he turns around and he looks for this man who's calling out for him. It's reminiscent of another story uh, that Mark tells us in Mark chapter 5, where there's a, a woman in a crowd, and she's been bleeding for some time, and she just quietly tries to reach out and touch Jesus' cloak. He knows that something has happened, and he stops, and he wants to find her, and he greets her with tenderness, and he says, daughter. And that same tenderness that he greets her with it seems to be that same tenderness that shows up here towards Bartimaeus. Because the crowd tried to silence him, but Jesus gave him a voice. The crowd tried to push him aside, but Jesus lifted him out. Bartimaeus couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus saw him. 
because that's what Jesus is like. That's what God is like. He is not afraid to associate with the lowly. He is willing to step into our need. He is ready to be present with us. The call for us is simply to humble ourselves, to recognize our need, our own inadequacy. Peter writes in his epistle in uh, 1 Peter 5, he writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus is not calling us to seek our own glory, our own advancement, our own success. He calls us to a far more humble position, one that accurately assesses our own need, one that doesn't take ourselves too seriously, one that is intentionally others-focused. And when it comes to going after this humble position and trying to put ourselves there, we are not without an example. Because Jesus lived and breathed this. He was the one that had every right to take a position of pride and of glory and superiority. And he rarely did. Instead, time and time again, he shows us that he's a different kind of Lord, a different kind of king, a humble one. And he demonstrates it once again at the beginning of chapter 11. And this leads us into the the second story that we have in our passage this morning with his entry into Jerusalem. So the chapter starts with this detailed account uh, of Jesus telling his disciples to go and retrieve a colt from a nearby village. And then uh, it sets the scene of Jesus' actual entry into the city of Jerusalem. So let's look uh, starting in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, at at first read, this hardly seems to us like a humble entry for Jesus, Right? I mean, he sends his followers off on this mission to find an animal uh, that he can ride in on into the city, right? Like, he sends that, he gives them that order. And he's just kind of like letting these people spread out branches before him like he's royalty. These people are hailing him as the Messiah, and he's soaking it all in, it seems like. But it actually might not be that simple. Yes, Jesus did get himself an animal to ride into the city on, and that wasn't typical for pilgrims that were coming up to Jerusalem for a feast. Now, Mark doesn't explain why he did this in this account. It's actually only afterwards from um, Matthew and John in their accounts that we get the context for this. They explain that the disciples didn't know what this cult was all about until uh, later. They realized that Jesus was very intentional in setting this up. He Possibly, we don't know for sure, nobody tells us how this colt arrangement came to be, but maybe he knew the owners of the colt, he had met them on a different occasion, he arranged to borrow it. But whatever the case is, he gets it from them at this time, and he does all of this to fulfill a messianic prophecy that comes in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy calls this king humble, mounted on a donkey. Donkeys were not typically the animal of choice for a king planning a military triumph. Yes, he was coming as a king, but he's mounted on a colt. He's not a military ruler. He's not what the Israelites had come to hope for. And also, we have the benefit of looking back on this whole event with hindsight, with the commentary from the other gospel writers. We know its messianic significance. We know that this is his royal entry into Jerusalem. And we kind of assume that the Jews that were there at that time singing these praises knew the same thing, even if they didn't know what exactly what kind of Messiah he was going to be, we assume that he, they knew his identity, that they're hailing him as the Messiah. For the longest time when I would uh, think of this passage, I, would, uh, I, I couldn't get out of my head um, scenes from the Easter musicals that my dad used to direct at Woodside, right? And uh, I, could just, I could just hear the music and everything. Um, in one uh, in one musical we did a few times, um, it was called The Choice. Um, this scene, the triumphal entry, was the first scene right after the intermission, right? The lights come up, and everybody's waving their palm branches, singing, here he comes, Hosanna to the son of David. Some of you know the song I'm talking about, right? In particular, I picture Graham Hill for some reason. I don't know why, but I can see him on stage, and it gets to the part of the song when it's just the men singing, and I can hear them singing, Roman slaves us, Messiah saves us, as freedom descends on Jerusalem. And that whole scene is portrayed, and it assumes that the Jews there knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he was coming as the king, and they were welcoming him as such. But actually, that might not have been the case at all. It turns out that the greetings the people were shouting in verses 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are actually from Psalm 118. And they uh, were typically used as prayers and greetings in connection with any number of Jewish feasts. And yes, they do have allusions to this idea of the kingdom of David, but they were a relatively like customary religious greeting in the same way that every Easter Sunday morning we greet each other with, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Sure, in hindsight, we can see what's going on here and we can see the symbolism of all this, but it probably wasn't known to the crowds at the time. William Lane, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, points out that even the spreading of the cloaks and the leafy branches that we read about in verse 8, this may have just been like a general expression of honor to Jesus, but it probably would have been done to any significant rabbi that came in to the city on a prophetic mission. It doesn't necessarily imply that the crowds viewed Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, Matthew's gospel explicitly says that the crowds called Jesus a prophet, and John says that the crowds only went out to meet Jesus because they had heard about this sign that he had done by raising Lazarus from the dead. In none of the gospel accounts is there any significant clash with the Romans, which you might have expected if they heard that a, a king was coming into Jerusalem. And even the response of the religious leaders is somewhat muted. In particular, um, we see at the end of our, our passage here in Mark 11 
that Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's a remarkably anticlimactic ending to the story if the Jews in Jerusalem thought that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, it would be fair of you at this point to be asking, well, why is all that significant? Why does it matter if they knew or not? They still gave him this big reception and honored him and said all these things, and that he didn't stop them. I hear you. I do. But here's where I find it intriguing. Remember that if, if they didn't know who Jesus was, Jesus still did. Jesus knew exactly who he was. That much is clear. He knew that this was his royal entry into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. He knew he was entering the city as the king of the Jews, as the long-awaited Messiah. He was aware of who he was and that he deserved praise, adoration, glory, and honor. But he didn't claim any of it. He allowed these people to just treat him like another one of their significant rabbis. A special one, yes, but, but nothing more than an earthly human prophet. He didn't claim anything more. It wasn't the time and place for that. He was content to just let his full identity remain veiled and hidden. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. William Lane puts it this way, at the time, only Jesus knew the messianic significance of his action. He intended to conform his entry to the prophecy of Zechariah 9. His action was a veiled assertion of both the fact and the character of his messiahship. It affirmed that the royal way involved humility and suffering. What kind of king enters his capital city among his subjects in such a veiled and humble manner like this? This triumphal entry of Jesus in some ways wasn't very triumphal at all. And yet this is so consistent with Christ's nature and the nature of his ministry and the nature of God's kingdom. It can be hidden and mysterious. It's often quite subversive. It's always expansive, but it's not always explosive. It's seen by some and it's missed by others. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. That means that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. He is the fullest representation of God's character. We need to filter everything we know about God through what we see demonstrated in Jesus. And that's such good news because when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that when God became human and decided to dwell among us, yes, he came as a king, but he did not feel the need to come storming onto the scene and force subjects into submission. No, he came as the child of a tradesman and his peasant wife. He was raised in obscurity and he entered ministry as an itinerant, homeless rabbi. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is king, but he's a humble king, and he's looking for humble hearts to follow him. 
not hearts that seek their own glory and status, not hearts that are set on upending political enemies, not hearts that need to be front and center and affirmed by others, but hearts that love their enemies, hearts that pray for those who persecute them, hearts that see the lowly and stop, hearts that are prepared to suffer and to serve so that they can see his kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in his life, we see a representation of your character. We thank you that, oh, we thank you that you are so good and so kind and so humble, even though you deserve everything. And Lord, we confess that we sometimes are more concerned with our own glory and our own success and our own whatever instead of being honest about our need of you. Lord, we thank you that you look on us with grace and mercy and love and compassion the way that you looked at Bartimaeus. Lord, I just pray that we would take that position of humility before you not in a self-deprecating way, but just in an honest way that says we know how good you are and we, we want to know you. Lord, we thank you and uh, each day may we make you our king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.